Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Alison Pena, aka Bad Widow. Alison supports clients to tap into their innate resilience and take back their lives after loss with stories, insights, and strategies. After losing her husband to pancreatic cancer in 2016, Alison designed new ways to re-engage, reinvent, and rebuild back to life, work, and even love. We discuss how to deal with grief, how companies can support employees through difficult times, and how people can reclaim their lives and identities after major trauma. Hey, Alison, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Really well. Thank you so much. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to connect. Um, We were just uh, joking before we started recording that you're based in New York, which is, um, I think for anyone listening, uh, they already know it's somewhere I'm desperate to get back to as soon as uh, I can can get in without having to quarantine. Um, And it's fantastic um, having you on the podcast because um, what we're going to discuss and and, and your backstory is something that isn't often brought up in terms of human performance or or in fact, um, in in, in many kind of circles. Um, But before we sort of really get into things, um, it would be great if you could uh, introduce yourself and, and your amazing background to everybody listening or watching. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Allison Penna, and I call myself Bad Widow. And the reason I call myself Bad Widow is that after I lost my husband to pancreatic cancer in 2016, what I found out was that people had no idea what to do with me. They had no idea how to speak to me, um, how to support me, what to, what to do, what to say. And so very often they got it wrong. And the bad widow came in because I, w- I wouldn't just go along. I wouldn't just say when someone said, how are you? If I was not fine, I would say so. And very often in order to not make other people uncomfortable, people say fine when they're not after a loss. And so they don't get the support they need. Um, So that's kind of the story. I grew up in New York. I love New York. It's my town. Fantastic. And, and but, you know, but before um, that happened um, to you in, in terms of losing your husband, what, what was your sort of background before that happened? And, and um, how did obviously that big life changing event sort of sort of hit you? Um, I grew up in New York. And uh, then after college, I what did I do? I um, did a whole variety of things. I was a financial consultant for Merrill Lynch. And then I worked for about close to 20 years, um, freelance proofreading and copy editing. I was a medical editor. And when I turned 50, I was a medical editor for a pharma advertising company. And I asked myself if this was what I was born to do. And the answer was no. Because there are these wake up moments, these moments where you look at your life and you say, is this going in the direction that I want it to be going or not? And at an age like 50, if it's or not, it's time to get on it. (laughs) And so I did. Um, 
so my, my husband, when I met him in 1992, I was a Merrill Lynch financial consultant. And by the time he died, I was a uh, consultant, a resilience consultant and an affluence code consultant. So my, our lives took a very drastic turn. He was an artist, professional artist, left me a thousand paintings. So that is yet another story. <laughs> Well, we, I mean, I mean we're, we're little, we were sort of again joking before we started recording, but um, you know, you, you are using some of the the, the paintings um, in as your your background on, on a lot of your video meetings, which are absolutely fantastic. Um, and I think having that sort of you know that that creativity as as a uh, basically a legacy, it, it must, must be very very sort of empowering and and you know thought provoking for you as well. Oh, it's absolutely wonderful, and it's absolutely challenging at the same time because there's his legacy of 800 paintings to sell or place or whatever, and then there's what I'm here to do. So in terms of performance, how do I find a place for both of those? And his intention was for the art to fund my work and my life. And there are things he left for me to do for him, but that was basically the plan. And that's been much harder to do than I had anticipated. I'm, I'm sure. And I think, you know, we, we've touched on it on the podcast previously, um, but, but these kind of, you know, big life-changing events, which when they happen, and, and I'm sure, you know, we, we can dive in if you're happy to in a second about what it was like to actually receive that, that, that initial news of, of that diagnosis. Um, but, but those often, you know, people will do one of two things. They'll either internalize that and, and feel very much like a victim and, and, and be on the back foot. Um, and that may happen initially anyway. But, but what I find fascinating is those individuals who will then, as you have done, turn that into a positive, not just for their own lives, but actually very much as you do, into something that helps and empowers other people as well, which is incredible. Um, so I, I was just wondering if you kind of, you know, speak to that sort of mentality and mindset and, and whether that was something that you knew you had inside yourself before that, that event happened or whether it was something that, that you just sort of discovered about yourself. Uh, it's something that I had inside myself for a long time. I'm a very good observer and transformer of my own experiences. So I, I do look to the solution in the breakdown, and I've done that for a really long time. But when, when Dave, my husband, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in October of 2015, when you hear cancer, it's a straight drop to despair. You know, it, it is not a good diagnosis. When you hear pancreatic cancer, what you're looking at, if you Google it, and Google is not your friend in this instance, is that you read that uh, you have six weeks to four months probably to live from the time of a stage four diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. So... We were together 25 years and we thought we had our lifetime together and then we didn't. You know, that was that future that we would planned for was suddenly cut short and we, we didn't know when. So it could have been bang on six weeks. It could have been shorter. It wound up being longer. We got 11 months and they basically say, you know, get prepared. This is coming. Prepare to die. They don't say it that way, 
but that's really what they mean. And a lot of the advice that we were getting was slow down, you're going to have less energy, you're going to get weaker, you're going to get thinner. These are some of the, you're going to lose your hair. These are some of the side effects that will happen. And for us, that made no sense. So if time was limited, his time and our time together, then why would we not live full till boogie till the end? I mean, what were we saving it for? <laughs> and in all honesty, the thing that we don't face is that this is true for every single person. Our time is not guaranteed. You don't know what will happen. Life does knock us sideways. And it happens to everybody in one way or another. It's death of a loved one, which certainly in these last year and a half, a lot of people have experienced that. But there are so many losses that we grieve in our lives. And pretty much everyone goes through at least one of those. So what we decided to do was live. And what we decided to do was, you know, recommit to loving each other. We were married just short of 20 years. We were together just short of 25. So close to half my lifetime. In that time, in that length of time in a relationship, a lot of it becomes about logistics. Did you take out the trash? Did you remember to pick up the toilet paper? You know, I can't believe you didn't, right? <laughs> Completely natural. And the love is there, but it kind of recedes into the background. If we had lived and loved each other the way that we did in that last 11 months, even though it was immensely hard, we would have had a, a really different relationship. I mean, it's very interesting hearing you talk specifically about that that relationship aspect. I mean, um, and you're absolutely right about you know the logistics element. I've, I've never really heard it put like that before, but that's absolutely spot on. Um, I, I mean, you know, for, for anyone listening who um, hasn't been you know through through these particular experiences and circumstances, is there anything you know you would recommend that they should do you know with their loved ones that they might be taking for kind of granted like right right now like literally switch off the podcast this is what you should be doing well i love you doesn't get overused it's really a central part appreciating what you have we tend to focus on what we don't have we tend to focus in terms of human performance on the goal that's out there. We tend to move the goalposts on ourselves. So yes, I've reached this goal, but I'm really going here. So I can't celebrate till I get there. And we, we rob ourselves of the fuel of celebration and completion by doing that. So life is short. If you really were to live like life was short and it is, what would you be doing? What conversations would you be having? What relationships would be you be healing? What is on your bucket list that you've been waiting to do? Because maybe you might be embarrassed. 
No, it's, it's, it's a really excellent point. And, and I think you're sticking with um, the human performance element. Obviously, my background in, in healthcare, we are supposedly trained how to sort of break bad news. And, and I did orthopedics where you might be explaining to someone they've broken a bone, but, but you know, fortunately, you're, you're not dealing with uh, you know, end of life conversations every single day. In, right. in terms of kind of, you know, both you receiving that news from the health professionals, and then when you also, uh, I would assume, had to communicate that to friends and, and relatives, how, how difficult were those, some of those conversations? And I guess in hindsight, is there anything you would ask for or do differently, do you think? Very, very, very difficult. Um, his mom, who, who I'm primary caregiver for, um, she's 98. And uh, she she did not believe he was going to die. You know, he went from 263 pounds down to 146 pounds and he was six foot three. So that gives you an idea. Um, And the last 10 days of his life, he was on oxygen at home. After he died, she said, nobody ever told me he was going to die. She so was in denial about it that I was very forthright. I really said, you know, life is short. His life is probably coming to an end soon. If you want to see him, come now. Or are you going to miss it? Uh, He had relatives, has relatives, had relatives, has relatives in Australia. And his mom was very reluctant to share this news. So I shared photos of us out doing things as he got thinner. Um, And so then they could reach out and ask questions and find out what was going on and give his mom extra support. But I was very straight about it. And people who were uncomfortable with their own mortality Basically, I said, just keep away. If you're being around to be a good person, please, I don't have the energy or the time for you right now. Yes, it's very, very interesting. And and I mean... In, in terms of, um, and you kind of alluded to this at uh, the, the top of the conversation, but, uh, you know, you, you were saying that you are, or you were, you know, very kind of open and honest with your feelings. So if, if people were asking you some of those, um, you know, just off the cuff comments about how you're doing and things like that, you, you would actually kind of give truthful comments. In, in terms of people, um, you know, in employment and things like that, who might have experienced, you know, some, some grief or, or a loss or anything similar along the lines of what you have been through. Yep. What would be some of, you know, your, uh, I suppose, tips or de- or coping mechanisms or, or things that people need to think about when, when those things hit and, and how to communicate that to others as well? Yeah, um, it's really important to build nets, to have um, things that you have set up that are um, that solve for breakdowns. So there's some very specific things that happen after you lose a loved one. One of the things that happens is um, physical stuff and there's um, emotional stuff that happens. Fear, grief, anger, and shame are the emotions that happen. And 
you think you can control your emotions. You can't control the emotions after grief necessarily. The only thing you can do is choose what to do when they show up. So if you're in a meeting and tears threaten, is it an understanding and safe place to cry? Or do you need to excuse yourself and make sure you're taken care of? If you can make those kinds of decisions before it happens, because it will happen, that goes a very long way to um, making it more comfortable for you and for the other person. There are some physical effects of experiencing grief and going through grief. Uh, there is an inability to focus, lack of energy, and uh, memory gaps. So if you're working on a project with other people, but you don't have that much energy to deal with people, how do you deal with that? I was a medical editor and proofreader who couldn't focus and had memory gaps. I couldn't do that. I was a consultant who couldn't deal with people. So the first job that I took after I, um, after I lost Dave, after he died, was I took a job in a Halloween pop-up shop because I, I couldn't do the kind of work that I was trained and qualified for that paid more, but I needed to start expanding my horizons again, deliberately. And that's one of the things that I would say in terms of performance after a loss, you may not be able to do all that you could do before. And, and yeah. I, I, I guess, I guess in terms of, um, you know, people's emotions, the, the kind of the, the age old adage around grief is, you know, everyone copes with, with grief in different ways. Um, as you've sort of, you know, been sharing your experiences with, with people and, and um, d doing a lot of, um, you know, coaching and things like that. Do, do you think that is true? Or do you think that there is a sort of a, a best coping mechanism in terms of how people sort of internalize things? There isn't a best coping mechanism. These, um, experiences that I'm describing, the feelings and the physical um, ramifications of grief seem to be very typical. People will say things like, I don't feel like myself. And, and a piece of that is in the area of performance or competence because you don't feel as competent as you did before. There are things which were very easy before which suddenly are not anymore. And what do you do about that? You know, what do you do about that? Nets are really a solution. Um, so I worked on pushing out my own horizons. It's a piece that I call re-engage because I had memory gaps and I couldn't focus and I had little energy I couldn't count on having the energy to think of what I needed to do in any given day. And so I created a list of every single thing that I could think of that I did in all aspects of my life and I wrote them down. Because when you're grieving and when you're exhausted, 
very often people, after they lose a loved one, they start sleeping two to four hours at a stretch. So they're never dipping into REM sleep. So they're always exhausted. This does not help with anything. But if I had everything written down if, and had done that when I had some energy, then I could go and take a look and then choose something that I had energy for that day. In a workplace, it's important to be a pretty good observer of your own experience because every experience is different. If you know what's happening with you, then you can prepare for it. If you're on a team, for example, and you don't necessarily trust your memory the way that you used to, you can ask for someone to do a double check. And this is something that companies can help with. What are the ways in which they are supporting people with these legitimate issues that happen after grieving, loss of a loved one? What are they doing to support that? Are the teams encouraged to, because the point is that the job gets done. The point is that the outcome is achieved. And so if someone is, going through this and they don't feel like themselves and they don't feel necessarily as competent as they were, what kind of support can be provided in that time? Is it safe to actually ask for what you need? Hey, could you just check over this proposal? I wanna make sure I didn't miss anything without it's bouncing back and having negative career consequences. This is one of my concerns about this time right now when people have gone through so many losses and they're grieving so much. These are the real effects. And so then how do we as individuals and how do companies and how do managers and how do bosses support people so that the work still gets done? Because it still has to get done, right? It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting, um, you know, hearing you talk about sort of organizations because, um, you know, I, I worked in the UK's National Health Service and, and then uh, subsequently, you know, run my, my own company. And I think it's because for, for the most part, some of these these big kind of life changing events don't happen every single day to to people you know within your business um if if you're lucky and and therefore a lot of organizations don't necessarily have a full blown you know grief policy or, or anything like that in terms of you know hr and things do you and and i guess you know just also sort of reflecting on people who I've seen kind of returning to work or, um, you know, I've, I've lost sort of loved ones in my life and then um, uh, getting back into work and, and not wanting to be sort of treated differently and, and get back to normalcy a little bit um, can be, you know, to some people a little bit cathartic. Do, do you think, that, you know, the, the organizations should have things in place where they kind of can help and, and coach people back into work? And, and what do you think about people who, just want to get back in and, and not take any time off and, and not really sort of, you know, check their own feelings. Well, I think that people have different, different ways that they need to do it. There's no one right way is the issue. I mean, for some people getting right back into work is, is healing. 
the, the thing that I feel is important is that people not be shamed for their experience. So if they need extra support or specific support, if they need to actually speak about what's going on, they're not necessarily going to whine at work about their personal experiences. But if they have real emotional and physical effects from this grieving process, then if the company is not aware and the managers are not aware that that is happening, they're going to miss it and what's going to happen from a, a company perspective is that the customers are not going to get served. The teams are not going to get supported. You're going to have more rate of people leaving because they can't tolerate it. The managers are going to start failing because they're not paying attention to this. And, and it's grief at the level that we're looking at right now has not happened before where everything collapsed all at the same time. It's, it's just, we, we have no experience. There's no models and people are just kind of doing the best they can. In terms of performance after, so I'll, I'll get a little bit into exactly how I move people through grief I am not a grief counselor. I'm a widow. I have a huge amount of experience with going from feeling broken back to thriving, which is human performance, right? Um, so the first thing is that after we experience a loss, a heartbreaking loss, what happens is that we typically contract. We contract to heal, to integrate, and then we do one of two things, one of two things, and I recommend a third, actually. <laughs> we sink into our feelings and feel the feelings, and that's all we do for a while. The danger is staying there and wallowing there. Or we try to skate over the feelings and jump right back into action. There needs to be some kind of balance of the two, but an honoring of both. Because life is still going on, but you might need more support. It doesn't happen automatically. In these last, this last year and a half where things closed down, people weren't allowed to touch each other. It's been really scary. And what we are assuming is that you can just bounce back, but you don't actually just bounce back from that fear, from that contraction. It is a choice. And if you haven't done something for 18 months, you might be a little bit rusty about how to reconnect with people, what to do. What are the practical steps that you need to do if you are no longer the same person that you were before your loss, after your loss, then how can you push out the world that you shrunk to heal again? I mean, for me, it was the Halloween pop-up store. It was not a big job. It was not a job I had any intention of doing more than once. 
but it was something I could do and I couldn't do what I could do before. And so I could either regret and beat myself up for the fact that that was just the truth or I could do what I could do, celebrate that and use it as a building block for the next expansion. Baby steps. And, and in terms of, um, you know, your role now and, and, and what you do, and, and like I said, it's absolutely amazing that not only have you, you know, come through this experience, um, but, but you're now actively helping others who, who might be going through the same thing. Yeah. What, what was the you know, impetus behind that? Because that, that, that in itself is a, is a huge decision um, to, to go and do something that's, that's so helpful to others and, and actually sharing your experiences obviously is a very, very brave um, you know, period. Talk, talk me through the, you know, the decision that went into that and, and what sort of struggles you, you sort of you know, faced along the way of, of sort of sharing your story. Really, the thing that just kept going through my head was this pain must serve. The first year was a wasteland of grief. And the second year I could go zero to rage in about five seconds with no warning. And, and these kinds of things can crash relationships, personal relationships and professional relationships. If you blow up in a meeting, you might be gone the next day. And it might be an effect of grief. This is why it's important to address these things. So, it really was this pain must serve. And after Dave died, there were not any resources that I could find from what I call in the raw. So there were people who could talk about how are you handling your finances? How are you releasing stuff? Lots of resources for that. There are many amazing grief counselors for how do you safely move through the feelings? Um, I chose to, at some point, you want more. So my clients typically come to me when their longing for more gets bigger than their fear of the pain. There is a hunger to grow and connect that gets temporarily contracted after a loss. Uh, so it was really this pain must serve and not being able to find anyone who was talking from where I found myself and providing anything helps, helpful. So I decided I'm this leader that I didn't want it, but here we go. <laughs> It's, it's um, I mean, it's, I find it absolutely amazing and it's such a brave d decision. And, and, and I think, um, you know, it m must have helped so many people uh, because as you say, it's, it's a real, uh, you know, it's a real kind of frontier territory in, in, in terms of people being open and sharing it. And, and I think, um, you know, whether we're talking about grief or whether it's things like mental health, especially on the back of, of as you say, what the world has been through over the last, uh, you know, 20 or more months now, um, yeah. With, with coronavirus, it's, it's so important to sort of share these experiences and, and, and help others. Um, I, I mean, one thing I'd be very interested in um, hearing you talk about is uh, often when these things happen to people, 
um, you maybe sort of have a label put on you. So suddenly you go from being, uh, you know, yourself, uh, you know, Alex in a, in a role, uh, to, to being, oh, that person whose who's relative has died or that person who has been through these circumstances. Um, even when, you know, you're introduced to new people um, in sort of friendship circles and things like that. H- how do you, um, you know, with, with both your own experiences and also when you're, you're coaching people through grief, h- how do you deal with elements of kind of the identity and, and, and dealing with that aspect of things? Yeah, there are a lot of assumptions made about who a person is after such a loss broken forever is typically what people, so you're sort of treated with kid gloves um, and how to speak to support and do things for them. Fundamentally, every person is different. How people go through grief is their own particular journey. And they're very reluctant to actually say what's going on for fear that it will push people away or cement their experience of of who you are right now. So I absolutely felt broken and was treated like I was broken. And even after I decided that that was not who I was, I was still treated that way by other people. And it takes some fortitude that you don't necessarily have the energy for to stand up against that and say, yes, my, I am shaken up, devastated. I will not be this way forever because I say so. And there is a line that gets drawn. There are some really amazing things that happen after such a loss. There's a real appreciation for life. So if you accept that life is short, then you look at the magnificence of it in a different way. There comes into play the the values that you really have, what really matters, not what you've sort of defaulted to over the years, rise up in these kinds of circumstances. And so the path that you were on and the person that you were may not be the same. You're certainly not the same person, but your priorities may change. Sometimes what people do is they try to get back on the old path, but they're not the same person. So the old path won't fit just because they're not the same person. And if their priorities have changed, then they may be going down a different track now. They try to jam themselves back into who they were and what they had it's not going to work. And this is kind of a hard truth, honestly. And it's also a great freedom because until you accept this, you can't carve forward, you know, recalibrate to match the priorities that you have now. And so that was kind of a second phase, which I call reinvent. So there's reengage, get back out into the world. And there's reinvent, which is who are you now? What are your values now? And what direction do those push you in? It might force a different way of being at work, being more connected to the people at work or to customers. 
it might force a career change. You honestly don't know. But what happens is what rises up is what really matters to you. And quite honestly, you ignore that at your peril. It creates a fearlessness, a real standing up for what matters. And an unwillingness to just go along which makes people after grieving a loss like this more difficult for others to be around sometimes because they're going to tell the truth. Mostly they're going to tell the truth. And, and just on, on that point of, um, you know, being around others, again, often a, a lot of the advice that, um, you know, society gives to people is have a, you know, a good support group and, and, you know, confide in friends and family, which, which is undoubtedly helpful. But, but I guess, you know, having been through um, you know, your own experiences and, and, and coached other people, th there is also that element of, you know, people who are supporting people who've been through grief often don't know how to deal with the situation themselves. So there's no guidebook on, you know, what to say to sort of support somebody or what not to say. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, people who are grieving, um, you know, individuals who are kind of supporting them might not show that support in, in, in the best or easiest way possible, whether that's either, you know, not reaching out or reaching out too much or, or suggesting they get back to, to work, you know, more quickly or trying to be a bit overbearing. Is there anything that, you know, from your experiences or from coaching people, you'd sort of reflect on there? So anyone listening who might have a friend or colleague who's going through um, anything like what we've been talking about could, could, you know, help them to the best of their ability? Absolutely. So that's that's the leg that I call rebuild. So there's re-engage, reinvent and rebuild, because what happens after a loss is people either step up, they step back or they leave. They step out. Um, what you hear a lot is that you're too much. Your emotions are too much. Your needs are too much. You're too much or your grieving process goes on for too long. And a person who's grieving is a lot to be around. They really are. You need to spread the support because one person honestly can't do it all. It goes on for a long time. The first year, people tend to be very numb, like it's not real. If we just endure, at the end of a year, it won't be real. So at the end of a year, you wake up to the fact that this is your reality. This is real. And this pain crashes up in a much bigger way. In that moment, almost everyone leaves because they're ready to get on with it. And they think that you should be too, except grief takes longer than that. It takes as long as it takes. It's, it can't be run by a schedule. Um, so rebuild is to look at who do you have who's providing the resources that you need personally and professionally in your life and who's left and do the roles that they left empty need to be filled. If it's a spouse, that person leaves enormous levels of emptiness in your network of support. And there is no network that's designed to fill those. 
So one of the things that I do with my clients is I ask them to look at what their networks look like personally and professionally and see who's there. What role do they play? What are they providing and what are you providing them? Because every network's reciprocal, right? Or it doesn't work. And what's missing? Because once you know what's missing and who's missing, you can start to fill those places. What we typically do, this was very curious to me. We typically have some transition or change or loss happen. And then we wait for people to show up to fill the spots of the ones who left. We might not get the right people because we're just kind of waiting. So what if you could have just the perfect people come? Clarity is a superpower here. Clarity in everything is a superpower throughout this entire process. If you know where you're suffering and where you aren't able to do stuff, like the feelings, the focus, the memory, and the energy, you can build a net. Clarity. People are very reluctant to get it wrong with a person who's a widow. So if you can't figure out what you need specifically, they're not going to do it because they don't want to screw it up. It's very human, but everyone loves to be a hero. So what I discovered was that people want to give you everything you need to get you back to thriving and they don't want to screw it up. So I had a three-part way that people could infallibly actually support the people that they care about. Because what happens is that someone who's grieving can't actually figure it out. They get asked questions like, I'm willing to do anything you need. What can I help you with? And that person is like, bring my person back, which is impossible. But there are other things they need. They just can't think of them. So what I recommend is talk to the person who's grieving and just listen to what they have to say, looking for what they need in that conversation without judgment, without shaming them. I had a very hard time opening the bills after my husband died because there were so many medical bills and they were so overwhelming that all bills were painful. So I almost had the power shut off the internet shut off because I wasn't opening the bills. So you might hear something like that from someone who's grieving. It's not that uncommon. So listen without judgment, suggest something that you can do out of what you heard and ask if it's okay that you do that and then execute with guidance as needed. Those three steps are enormously helpful because what happens is that people give advice based on what they think they would want in your situation. And usually it's wrong. 
And I mean, I think it's um, all, all the, the elements that, that you're speaking about are just so, so helpful because as we said um, at, at the top of the conversation, that this is not a topic that is is brought up and certainly not in the, the practical detail that you go into. Um, I, I mean, if, if helping people through your coaching and sharing your story wasn't enough for you, you you've also taken on the challenge of, of, of writing and now finishing, uh, putting together a book, which is going to be on sale, I believe in September. Um, I, I'd be really interested to... Um, hear from you and understand what that process was like in terms of was that cathartic? Did you learn anything else from doing it? Um, and what are you hoping that people sort of take away from that? So my book is called The Bad Widow Guide to Life After Loss, Moving Through Grief to Live and Love Again, because that's the key. Um, the grief continues it eases, but it does continue. There are people who grieve 15 years, 40 years. It gets easier, but it doesn't stop. There isn't any moment, as far as I can tell, and I've talked to many, many people, where you're just over it. So it's necessary to move through it to live in love again. In terms of writing the book, it was enormously painful. I thought about writing just a business book. Okay, here's how I got through. But that's not what Bad Widow's about. Bad Widow's about really authentically and vulnerably sharing these experiences because every solution I came up with was born out of a breakdown. I couldn't remember to eat, literally to eat after Dave died. And because my memory, I had five seconds from when I thought of being hungry to get to the kitchen before I forgot again. So I literally put baskets of power bars and stuff around the apartment so I would have a visual cue and I didn't have to rely on my memory because that was failing me. Out of the stories came the solutions. And the first thing that people who are grieving need to know is if they can trust you, if they're safe with you. And in the, the so that the book didn't wind up as I planned for it to be, which would have been very easy. You know, here's the things I use to get through my coaching, re-engage, reinvent, rebuild. Yeah, no. So it's all about the stories. And so writing the book required me to go back to those places, which were honestly really painful moments. And yet to tell it authentically, I had to do it that way. So they wound up being stories with the tips and techniques and whatever at the end of the chapters but they're designed for people to know that I see and know them. And that the solutions I came up with really work for people who have felt broken and may not know how to get back by themselves. You can do it on your own. I did it. It's hard. It is not easy. And it is grief is something that's not talked about and that's very much misunderstood. And the danger is to fall into the thought that you might stay broken 
and that you can't get back. That is just not true. It's just not true. Well, I think I'm I'm incredibly excited to to read your book um, when when it comes out because I think um, you know everything that that you have done is is so incredibly brave and and, and I think that's a you know that that process of going up and and as you say although going through those, those painful stories and remembering them and then writing them down is is incredibly challenging I'm I'm sure it's going to be incredibly helpful to others going through similar situations so I think you know thank you on, on behalf of kind of everyone listening and everyone who does pick up your books in advance, uh, which I'm sure they will, uh, which is, is just amazing. Um, as we start to wrap things up, um, I'd be really, really interested to know, um, you know, who your human performance hero is, who, who gets you, uh, you know, through some of those difficult times um, and, 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 you know, helps you to challenge yourself to do some of these amazing things. So that pers- person is my mother, actually. Um, my mother, uh, my mother's an amazing activist. She started writing uh, poetry and performing in open mics in her early 80s. She's wow. now had six poems published. She um, created in her town, she, she had a day named for her in Minneapolis, St. Paul for her service to the community. Wow. Yeah. Um, she has the mayor of her town on speed dial and together they, well, she was one of the people who was instrumental in creating this wall that brought the community together. This painted wall, it's called the wishing wall. It's in Sleepy Hollow and it's beautiful, but it was old people, young people, it's in English and Spanish, it's spectacular. And the idea behind it was to create a wall with what people wished for their families, for their communities and for the world and to portray that. And this is my mom. These are the kind of things that my mom pushes forward. So she's an incredible activist. She's actually also the editor for my book She's tough. (laughs) And I I love her. And she hasn't always understood me or understood what I was doing, but she backs me. And she uses what I have created to make herself more effective, to enhance what she's done in the world. So she's an inspiration, an activist, and... I'm following in big shoes. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I'm 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 going to um, have a look at that that wall and, and painting it, uh, immediately after we finish recording. Actually, that sounds incredible, and um, yeah, it must 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 run in the family, which is uh, <laughs> which, which is brilliant. <laughs> um, well, Alison, it's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking with you t- uh, today, and, and I'm sure you know I'd, I'd um, love to to you know spend the entire day chatting with you. But uh, if if anyone does want to um, you know find out a little bit more, or is perhaps you know going through some similar circumstances and, and wants to kind of reach out for coaching or anything like that, where, where can they go to reach you? My website is badwidow.com. Badwidow.com. <laughs> Pretty easy. Okay. 
Amazing. Easy to remember. And, and the book is out in, in September. And this is 20, September 2021 for anyone who might be listening to this uh, in the future who, who, who might pick it up while going through some tough times. So um, it's again, been an absolute pleasure. And um, I, I wish you all, all the best um, you know, on your future success. And, and um, I think, again, just on behalf of everyone uh, you know, who might be listening or watching this, um, again, it, it's a very um, you know, unfortunate series of events that you yourself have been through, but, but it's always how you respond to those things and what you do, which, which I think you're an absolute exemplar of. So uh, you know, on behalf of everyone listening and watching, thank you again for everything you've done. Thank you so much. 